Welcome to Lemmy Works, brought to you by Leadership Education Mentoring Institute. We are inspiring parents, mentors, and communities as they embark on the journey of transformational project-based education. Hi, this is Tatiana Fallon. Hi, this is Heidi Christensen. We're so excited to be your hosts. Hi, everyone. We are here today with Tina Forsyth, one of our absolutely amazing Lemmy trainers. And Tina, um, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself? You know, how long have you been homeschooling? What made you start homeschooling? That kind of thing. Absolutely. I started homeschooling in 2001 uh, at the beginning of the school year. It's always easy to remember because that's when um, 9-11 was. And I just had my seventh baby and um, brought my kids home from school. I had always had it kind of in the back of my mind, but it wasn't until I moved into a new neighborhood and some people down the street were homeschooling. And I saw it in action, or at least was, okay, people are homeschooling. And then about 20 different things happened at the school when I said, there's your sign, signs, 20 of them. And it was just the right time. So I, I did what a lot of parents do when they don't, when they don't know what to do is I brought them home and did what I know, which was try to recreate the public school at home. And it took me about two weeks. So I was like ready to send them back and all the things it that just doesn't work as many of us have found out and um and so fortunately um a lady named T Tina Barris um her her mother is Joyce Kinmont who is had a who started like the LDS HE um uh, LDS home educators and longtime homeschooler she moved in two doors down and um and so she came over with the book one day, this little green and gold book. She's like, Tina, 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 this is what you need. And she handed me a Thomas Jefferson education. And so I read that and I went, yes, but how do I do that? It sounds great. How do I do that? And so I, I started, I went to a seminar over the summer, Oliver DeMille spoke, other people spoke and I started to gain a bigger vision of it and then started up that fall. And it was fun because we had several families and we put together, I put together a little group, kid group called Kittlebugs that I did. And then um, we had science classes and a science fair. And um, I did math games at my house on Fridays for whoever wanted to come and it was just fun. We built a community. And then we did a play together because the Barris is big into plays. I was big into theater. And um, though I hadn't done anything for a little while. So we we put together a script. And I wrote, I wrote one song for that. But we just kind of, Tina and I combined into the TNT show and did a couple great plays for these kids. And then our local church leaders kind of heard about it because we were able to use the church to perform in. And um, we were asked to do a big musical um, for our whole area. So we went and performed that up at the Bountiful Regional Center. It was called I Nephi, um, written by Janine Brady. She wrote the um, CD of music and we contacted her and said, hey, we love this music. We would really love to turn this into a full 
full-blown musical. And she said, oh, well, I'm just finishing it up. So I got to work with Janine for 10 months and that talk about a mentorship. What was so great. And so we performed it. We had a cast of about 130 and uh, performed it at the Bountiful Regional Center. And then the head of the LDS Church Music Department, Michael Magleby, got a um, came and saw it because he'd heard the buzz about it. And then he asked us to come and be the first group to perform at the LDS Conference Center Theater, which is a Broadway class stage and seats about 700. And it was so fun because we, Tina and I would be there all day with our kids. So between the two of us, I think we had 12 children and we would be up on stage building big set pieces like 20 feet tall and that opened a big book that opened into the Jerusalem backdrop while the kids are on stage playing math games and, and doing schoolwork and reading. And they, they were just our little theater kids and they were all in the musical as well, um, except my newborn. And so it was just absolutely a wonderful kickoff and very, it was just wonderful to get to live that stimulation kind of and, and kick off homeschooling. And then once uh, my oldest two got to high school age, um, and we had moved to St. George from the Salt Lake area and there wasn't really anything and they were needing more. And I didn't have a community for them yet. And so I put my two oldest in high school because I just wasn't able to meet their needs. And then the next year uh, we started meeting together, some of us local homeschoolers to create the first Commonwealth here. And it was, I tell you, when you start doing something worthwhile, the trials and challenges were just slapping us in the face. We would have meetings till two or 3 a.m., um, because there were individuals in it who were making it very difficult and wanting to use Rod Robert's rules of, um, to, to speak and things like that. And so I think, uh, learned a lot of lessons from that. Those that were making it hard ended up leaving because we kind of stuck, we stuck to our guns. We finally got it together. And, um, now I think there's five or six commonwealths down here. Um, and lots of co-ops now that, you know, now that COVID has happened, but yeah, it grew and we just kept splitting off and splitting off and splitting off. And that's really a Mecca of, of TJ Ed and Lemmy trained uh, mentors and parents down here in St. George. And I love it. That sounds like a great adventure. <laughs> it has been. <laughs> and so I, then have, how, I have 10 children you... now. So how did you get to, to find Lemmy then? You just found it when you moved to St. George or? Yes, when I found, when I moved to St. George and then there were several families who had already started talking, I think with Tiffany and how to set up um, the government. Um, Amy Bowler, one of our other trainers, I'm sure a lot of people listening might know her name or know her. Uh, she moved in the next year. She would have been great to have on board that first year, but she, she wasn't here yet. Um, and But some other families um, got that going and then I jumped in as well. And they 
did their first training. I jumped in second semester as the Shakespeare mentor because uh, we lost our Shakespeare mentor. And then I mentored the full year the next year. But I just loved Lemmy. It just fits so well with Thomas and TJ Ed and fit well for our family and our community because it really, um, it's the scholar project for the parents and loved it. Still love it. So your first project was Shakespeare, which is probably your first love, right? <laughs> yeah, yes. Well, I have to say Georgics is. I, I love theater. I'm, I work in theater. I, I work in film and theater and I love it. I love it so much, but I don't know. Georgics is just foundational for my life. It's in my okay. DNA. So tell us, tell us why George Georgics is such a foundational project. Uh, I think, okay. For me personally, I think it's because of the way that I grew up um, in very horrid situations and so it helped give me a foundation of truth, a foundation of natural cycles of life. Uh, when I am outside, I just feel whole. And I love to grow. I love to create. And so Georgics has really given me a depth in creation that it's not just about making things, but there's so many incredible principles that can build a person by learning them and, and intentionally implementing them in their lives. And then I think every lesson you could ever need to learn probably in life, you can draw some kind of analogy or story from gardening. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Um, some of my very favorite memories are gardening with my children and harvesting you know, starting from the beginning. And I've, I've learned some great lessons as a parent um, with it. For instance, um, about the law of the harvest. I have seven sons and three daughters. My sons would always be like, okay, tell us what you want us to do, mom. We'll get it done. Let us we'll dig it up. We'll get it done. And then we want to go do our thing. And I allowed them to do that, my older sons. And with my girls, however, you know, in December, we'd order all the seed catalogs and they'd come and we'd pour over them and we'd be, oh, what are we going to plant this year? And we'd draw out sketches of what we had the spiritual creation of what we wanted to happen. So that's the beginning, the very beginning of the whole um, harvest cycle is that, that spiritual creation. And then, you know, the boys would dig up and do a lot of the heavy work and we'd be, at, be out there as well. But the girls, we put the dream into action and we tended and we'd go out there and we'd learn about all the pests and all the different varieties. We'd try new things and, and make it fun too. Instead of just doing long rows, we'd, we'd make it so, you know, you could have trellises that you could crawl under, you know, I do a lot of fun stuff in the garden now for my grandkids uh, and turn around the corner and there's a whirly gig, you know, and just fun stuff and different colors and then, of course, to harvest time and then, you know, canning it or um, cooking it. So my girls participated in that whole thing. And so they learned to have the full joy that came from all the work, whereas the boys never got the joy because they never got to experience, at least my older ones, I've changed because I've learned, um, because they did not get the fullness of the law of the harvest. And so they did not end up having 
the joy that comes from doing the work. And work and joy is one of the results of Georgics, one of the principles, if you will. And so I've learned a lot from gardening. And a lot of times when I'd be out in the garden and we'd be working and something was going on in one of my children's lives, I could draw a comparison to what was going on in the garden. Um, and, and that was a good way of speaking with my children without it being too direct to them. I, I love that. I, I spend a lot of time when I need to uh, talk to my kids, I will do it in the car because they're oh. trapped. <laughs> yes. Yes. Your, your way of doing it is a lot more creative. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I love it during COVID, my daughter, Ivy, she created a big um, list on Spotify because I mean, that's what we did. We had the most incredible garden during COVID and um best one we've ever had because we were just working every day out there and um so she created a beautiful music list that we'd listen to out there and now whenever I hear one of those songs I'm back in the garden with my ivy girl singing and working and having just the most joyous time ever oh that is awesome that is awesome so I know you have taken Georgics and you've shared it a lot with other people because I'm constantly seeing how you are having these classes and stuff about canning and everything like that. Um, has it been something that has, you know, a lot of people have been showing an interest in lately? Really, truly, yes. Um, and a lot of people who've moved to St. George from California are the majority of the people that have had a deep interest and have taken my classes. When COVID hit, I immediately, my first thought when I saw stuff early in January, I don't know how I saw it, but I think I was, was meant to see it because um, I think it was, it was actually January 1st and I found something and I was so concerned about it. Not it exactly, but I was very concerned about what the response would be to it. And something just, this, you know, providence, the spirit, whatever you want to call it, um, really spoke to me. And so I decided, well, I didn't decide. I it, I guess it was decided for me in a way. I was just so concerned about the moms um, and what was going to happen. And so I actually started doing classes that year for moms. I taught um uh, I taught a Georgics class um, at a private school, and then they allowed me to teach um, a family class in the evenings. And so I had a moms and their children. I didn't have any dads come to that. Um, and then from that, I taught a, a gardening class. Uh, I think I have like 35 people that came, gardening and food storage. Um, and because I was just so concerned about people being able to get food that didn't that didn't happen until a little bit later, uh, but I was already well on my way to establishing that, and um, and I saw some amazing things happen in my community, just like Facebook pages where moms would help each other, and you know because there was the formula shortages and different things, and so someone needed something, they would post on that and um, help each other, and that was really amazing. That's one of our, the principles of Georgics is community stewardship. And I love that people were feeling that for each other and helping. It was great to be part of that. Um, not only my little neighborhood, because um, we fed a lot of people during that time, 
um, that were sick, but in the greater area as well, just everyone helping. What a great time it was, even though parts of it were ugly as well. It's so cool because like as you're talking and made the connection of like, hey, actually the law of the harvest is now like filling out in your life, right? Because you've spent years with the kids in the garden learning and doing all these things to to for just for your own family benefit, right? And then here comes the time where it's like you're you're like really needed and the law of the harvest is coming true again because you know it's like you've worked so hard and now you're harvesting all these rewards of knowledge to give and share with everyone and it's just kind of like full circle with the principles that are in georgics so you talked about the law of the harvest but what's another principle from georgic you've georgics you feel is like really helpful for like our scholars especially to begin grasping oh great question so for i think forgiveness and perseverance things don't always go right in our lives and we may, we may, you know, set the soil, the foundation and plant the seeds that we want and things happen. Illness happens. We get distracted with things and aren't able to tend our education or tend to the things that we're in charge of. And so sometimes we have to just step back and say, it's okay. And, and start again pull out those weeds and replant or maybe you can maybe there's still enough left to just get keep it going and baby it and but that's so important I think that's important for parents as well because I've started over with our homeschooling all the time you know great intentions all the time and life gets crazy I'm a single mom now and so that just makes it doubly hard um but we we just start again and I don't I don't carry that shame or regret anymore it's just like you know what we got off base let's start again and it's such a better place to work from so Georgics definitely taught me that it's one of the great important um principle I think as well self-validation one of the fun games I play with my scholars is I have a list of things and then they get points if they can do it, like, okay, if you got out of bed this morning without hitting your snooze, you get five points. If you got up before your alarm went off, you get 10, right? Um, If you can tie your shoes, I do some that we all can do, right? So everyone can get some points. But um, if you can make your own scholar schedule and plan your day, get this many points. Anyway, so just getting them to start thinking about what are some of the things that they can be in charge of in their lives because really Georgics, Georgic teaches a lot about agriculture and the way that we take care of agriculture. But the scholar project actually and the harvest is the scholar. And that's what we're trying to get through is in fact I just did a training and one of the cute moms afterwards she said, okay, this is this has been so incredibly amazing. And they just told me it was about gardening and a little bit of other stuff and I just laugh so hard because we do talk a lot about gardening and growing things but it's not about gardening and growing really at all that's just kind of the method we use to teach these wonderful principles that help build scholars and their families so 
I love that too because like I just did training as well and everybody's like oh I thought this was American history and constitution class like nope you know it's a project so it's it's gonna be a project and I think that's like a huge a huge shift for a lot of people to like understand but once they get it like really is life-changing it's like all that we offer here at Lemmy are projects. We're not offering any classes whatsoever, right? And so right. the ultimate end goal of the Georgix projects is to build a scholar, right? Like that's the end goal. And we accomplish that through various means, but it's 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 all a big project. And it's beautiful once you can see the project come to fruition, but it's really rough along the way sometimes. It sure can be, yes. And I think sometimes... Uh, I think ways that parents can help their scholars through, through that, um, because Georgix is one in which we can tran- help transition a scholar from practice scholar to apprentice scholar, where they're taking on more of the responsibility and they're making a, a stronger commitment. And I think that this project really helps with that. And one of the things I think is in the writing, when they the papers that they write are many papers. That's what's expected anyway. And so they really just have to write about the principle and write what the definition of the principle is in their own words, and then try and make a connection to something in their life, you know, this practical application. And, you know, I've seen scholars who will just write the bare minimum and others are ready to go on for more um, and write more. So we give both practice level feedback and apprentice. So we give them lots of, oh, this is awesome. You did such a great job. But then when we say, hey, are you ready yet? I'm noticing you're doing a great job. You ready for more? And would you like help with this or help with that? And we let the scholar decide when they're ready to step it up instead of putting pressure on them about their grammar or about anything else. And I think parents can help with that too by always inviting and because the process works, I've seen my all my children go through it. It has worked every single time um, for them to become writers if we trust the process that Lemmy has set up for the writing. Yeah, no, I know that whole the writing process is so different. And I have had to work with parents who are like, well, you're the teacher, you need to, you know, mark up these papers and tell them how to write and it's like no (laughs) right that's that's not not the purpose of these of these projects right yeah yeah and i love it because once they get into quest and i have my son nathan just completed quest and i was his writing mentor um i normally parents aren't their own children's but i i'm i think i'm a very effective writing mentor because i've learned when to set back and i've learned a process too because i've had Uh, several children on the spectrum and I've learned how to um, start with the practice scholar because some of them can't get those thoughts amazing thoughts that they have on paper it's a mechanic thing it's something not working in the brain so the method that I have that I use with my kids that I just and maybe other parents do too was just born out of sheer frustration and not knowing what else to do is at first I will sit with my child next to me and I will ask them the question that is given that they're supposed to write about it and they usually don't have any hard time verbalizing something and so they verbalize it and I will type it or write it down and so they make that connection okay my thoughts are now on the paper and then I move from there 
um, to sitting with them and they're at the keyboard and I ask them the question, they verbalize it. And then I give it back to them one at a time as they type it out. And it's just baby steps, uh, but it's helped several of my children who have been on the spectrum. One that has serious um, information processing disorder, he could stand up in church and talk for 40 minutes, but to put that on paper, I mean, you should just shoot him. He would just rather be shot. <laughs> But he went through the process with Quest um, and it was painful for both of us. It was, it was tears for both of us, but he is doing tremendous now um, because he just, he, but we followed the process and it worked. My 15 year old um, by the end of the year wrote his big, whatever, 12 page paper and didn't need my help at all. And we had tears and we mostly me <laughs> by myself. <laughs> Just, yeah. And so the process works. It really I think works. that's the thing that I love so much about the process, right? Is that the hope is that, you know, if you force the kid at 12 to do it, if, you know, some kids you can't force to do anything, right? There's always that, that few who just, you can't force to do anything, but a lot of kids you can pal and you can make them do it because most, I think kids can be compelled to do something by their parents, you know, through mm -hmm. whatever means. Right. But, but what ends up happening when you force the kid is like one, they don't really intrinsically like master it. I don't feel like, and two, they don't care. <laughs> yeah. They don't care. And then two, um they don't um they don't like they have such a foul taste in their mouth that they never go back as an adult right and so I right. think like like you're causing two harms like one they're not learning at all like the full utilization of the skill and two they're never going to do it as an adult right like and and so I think like it's it's not like we want everyone to become authors you know like that's not necessarily the goal of the project but we want to be able to like get them to all effectively communicate their their ideas right and yes. with like the invention of AI and as it continues to develop that's one of the things that has to be like paramount is your ability to communicate your ideas because we're we're switching from like the computers being on you know very heavily the way we used to program like all the programming languages have been like variables and you know algorithms and now we're switching to language learning and so mm -hmm. like all the computer programs are going to be language learning and if we don't have the ability to master this language then we we're not going to be able to really be able to work with technology that we're going to be need, needing to in the future because that's the new shift like so I love that you tell that story because it's like what if what if we can take a kid who you could force all day but <laughs> never get there right and mm -hmm. work really really hard through this long process of four years I mean you've been doing this for a while with him and then at the end he can totally do it on his own and do it well right and so it's just yeah. but it's so hard to too because parents want I want it here I want results now I want to see it now like so uh um, man, I agree a good story uh, and also I have noticed in my own children and students that I mentor that when we're learning a new form of writing, they will often temporarily lose some of their skills, like their spelling or punctuation or grammar. And so if you expect that as a parent and know that it will come back, 
And as long as you have that conversation and go through, hey, what do you notice about this? Because we are focusing on a new form of writing. That should be the focus. And so I don't correct for grammar and punctuation and things like that when they're learning a new form. And I've noticed it comes back. And I mean, my children have never had a spelling list or spelling test in their life. And they're all incredible spellers um, with, you know, little exceptions here or there, usually on, you know, homonyms or homophones or whatever. Um, but there's a time to work on each of those areas. And I think everything in its right time is so important. We're interrupting this broadcast to invite you to ask questions or share your epiphanies in the comment section. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving us a good review on the platform you are using because that really helps others find our content. Also, check out our website at lemmymentortraining.com. Yeah, I just got back from a, um, a homeschool convention and I had a booth and, you know, everybody's coming up to me and asking me, okay, well, I have a, I have a pre-K, what curriculum do you suggest? And I'm like, oh, no curriculum. No, please. None. <laughs> Mud, chalk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I said, okay. Um, Plants, garden. Yeah. Play out in the, in the mud. Um, you know, learn, read, uh, a, you know, I live in California and so it's like, you know, get a, we don't have any snow. So, you know, get a, a, um, membership to the zoo or, whatever just get out and learn in in that way and um I just have to cross my fingers I have to cross my fingers that some of them actually listen but I know it's I know it's really hard though because parents um it's all they see it's all they have seen for a long time Mm -hmm. and you have to go back farther in history to see things differently Well, it's also, it looks messy and bad. I mean, like, so for my 10 year old is reading at like, you know, probably a first or second grade level. Sure. She can't really spell at all. And her handwriting is atrocious. (laughs) Right. And so it, 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 so if she goes in social situations or interacts with people, like it looks really, really, really bad. Right. Like it does, you know, she's 10 and she can't do these things. So it looks bad. But then the other things that people don't see is my 10 year old is insanely creative. We'll sit down for hours and just create something like build games, build houses, build dollhouses, build with out of just cardboard for hours. Right. Or she'll sit in the mud and like dug so many holes in my backyard just to get to the clay so she can build pots and bowls and animals and clay figurines. And, and so it's like, yeah, that doesn't look really good right now at 10. And so like, as a parent, you can feel shame because it's like, oh my gosh, yeah, my kid isn't where all the other kids are, right? Or you can have the long view of things. It's like, no, what I'm building in her mind right now is initiative, right? Mm-hmm. And and then I'm not going to be kicking myself in the butt at 16 when she doesn't want to do anything of her own free will because I've squashed her initiative, right? So yes. it's like, you, you've got to look at the big picture. It's like, she, you know, we don't have any technology in the home besides her audiobooks and you know a movie occasionally but like you know then then she's just free to to have initiative right and my 
you know, my eight-year-old is same boat, but, you know, if we go to library, she wants to do science projects all summer long. So it does make my life a little more stressful because I don't <laughs> have all the supplies, but we're working on it. And so you could say, yeah, it doesn't look good because they can't read very well, but they both have learning disabilities. So if we had been in this system, they still wouldn't be reading, right? Like mm-hmm. it's still, but it looks bad, right? As a homeschooler, if if you don't, because there's nothing to compare to, right? So you really yeah. do have to have that long-term vision of what's this kid going to look like at 40? Oh, yes, absolutely. One of the fav- my favorite stories that I share, both with the Georgic mentors and with the scholars it applies to both is i show them four pictures of a tree and tell them a story about um this gentleman who sent his four sons to uh go look at this tree that was far away each of them made the journey he sent one in the in the springtime one in the summer one in the fall one in the winter and they all came back and reported on what they saw and um he and he said well you're all right and he, I'm just paraphrasing the story, but um, the point is, he said, would you cut that tree down in the winter? Cause that's all you've seen of it, of the tree. Um, you need to see all the cycles of the season before you can make a judgment. And so these children are just still in their early spring. And so we can't judge their harvests by that, nor should we, we need to see that whole cycle um, before we can make any judgment. And I've seen it in my son, Noah. My son, Noah, right now is in Mexico. And he is serving a mission for our church. And when he was 10 years old, he could not read. Um, he's the one with the information processing disorder. And I remember our one of our church leaders in the children's organization, who happened to be the former governor of Utah, um, and she sweet lady but education was her thing and she came up to me one day and put her arm around me she said would you like me to come over and help teach Noah how to read (laughs) and oh I I went between embarrassment and shame and and no and all the things I felt all the things um and uh and she had every wonderful intention and I love her for that um Olene Walker was her name, uh, our only female um, governor we've had. Anyway, so, but Noah was my one who then at, I think at 11 or 12, um, he ended up listening to and watching and reading um, and was the first one to finish the the Shakespeare plays and was crowned king because that's just you can't be a Forsyth and not be king of your class. <laughs> and I don't put that pressure on it. They've put the pressure on each other. Like you've got to toe the line because they've all been the first anyway. Um, and that's just something we do. And I, when, when it comes, I do help because I prepare, I get all the plays out and, and I'm like, which ones do you want to, and they make a schedule and we just go, you want to stay up two days in a row? Okay, I will support that. Here's your food, all that. Because they're just ready to r- rumble, right? And so um, and so he listened to most of them. And then he, but he, I think a couple of them, he read along as he listened and that helped him. But then after that, all he wanted to do was read scriptures. And he probably did that for a year or two. That's all he wanted to do. And um like, okay, 
but that gave such repetition in scriptures. And then when he was 14 and was asked to give a talk, that's when he stood up and took the entire sacrament, the church meeting, <laughs> which he wasn't supposed to, supposed to. And he just went, he, and he just made all these amazing connections. I was in the back, like, cut it off, cut it off. You're done. <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, because he was able to, through the work that he'd done and that the struggle that I allowed him to go through and um, has served him well because he's an adult now and now he's in Mexico learning a new language and he still has information processing disorder and he the first six months he was I mean he was in tears and you know I'm so glad that we've been able to talk to him uh, each week almost every week and um I'm like, you've been through this before. You will get through this again. Just that reminder and that preparation. Remember what you went through. And and he is now, he is joyful. He's feeling successful. You know, he his his leader had said, hey, you're kind of behind everybody with the language. And I just reminded him, I'm like, you, Noah, you just remember who asked you to come on this mission and who put you in Mexico and and you're good enough. You are absolutely, and you're going to nail this. And he, he is, he's been out for nine months now and he's doing great. And so I think it's important to let our, our kids struggle with things and let them find things on their own. Cause then they end up sticking so well. I just had a crazy epiphany where I'm talking about it. Like, um, people ask me, you know, the really intense you know, crucible moments of your life, would, would you take them back? Would you like them to be like non-existent? And I think mm -hmm. about it, I'm like, no way. Like, that's who I, that's who I am. And I am that way because of it. And as you're talking about, there's like, you know, I was talking to my daughter and she's like, oh, I wish I wasn't dyslexic and I could just read. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's totally okay to wish those things. That's okay to be in that place. But, and, but like, I just held space for her while she was kind of, kind of being sad and talking about it and stuff. But then, you know, as I'm talking to you, you know, probably what I should have said afterward, I'm like, it's okay to wish that things were different, but don't wish away your greatest blessing, which is these things that make you grow so fast and well. And I think about it, like looking back on my, I mean, yeah, I have freakouts and stuff just because I think that's natural and normal as a parent. But like, I, I mean, I'm dyslexic and not the best speller. I can spell well if I do it with a pen on a piece of paper, but I can't spell on a computer. I can't spell. It's, I don't know. I don't know why my brain like this. Yeah, I don't know, well, whatever. The act of writing does something different in our brain than typing yeah. does, for sure. Yeah, it does. And I don't know why, but anyways. But like, so I look at all my siblings and while we're all very well-educated, and we're all like, you know, very, you know, smart, I would say, I, I would, I would go as far as say, it's like, I'm probably the most well-read because it was so hard for me to read. Mm. So it became something much more precious to me than anyone else in the family. You know, my yeah. brother taught himself to read at four and he doesn't read anymore. Because he, well, he does, he works a ton, but he still, he just prefers to listen to podcasts and not read. Yeah. But like, um whereas like the rest of my siblings it, reading was easy for them it was really hard for me and you know I value it way more right so why would I take that relationship away or that growth away from my child or see that growth or that struggle as anything but a positive in their life that's such a cool epiphany I just had it's like you know you've done this before you know what you're made of you know your metal and at you know at eight nineteen or 18 or 
he can be that mature of a person because of what you've done for him. Like that's so crucial. It's so awesome. Yeah. And he actually didn't end up leaving till he was 21 because he was, you know, still, he didn't know that he'd be able to do it. And he finally decided I'm going to go and I'm just going to do it. He was worried that he wouldn't be able to. Um, And so he finally decided I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to do it. And he's doing it. So, um, and what's, and what's really cool too, is that time that he was only reading the scriptures he was still taking scholar classes, but yes, he did the audio books. So he was still getting reading in with the repetition um, that you can find in the scriptures, even though there's a lot of hard words in there. Some I can't pronounce those names and things like that sometimes. Um, but he was still getting the content of the class through audio because he's more of an audio learner. And so I think sometimes that's a misconception that I think some parents have too, about audiobooks that that it's not the same but there's the difference between the mechanics of reading and the content of what we're taking in and we're more concerned in the content that's being taken in so that's why we do these scholar projects because there's a lot of different learning environments in which we can take in the knowledge which is the content right and the experience and so don't discount the audiobooks and um, I would enc- I would encourage my children to listen to the audio and maybe read along parts of it. That can also help with their reading. It can help with some of their comprehension. And as they get older, we want to encourage them to also take notes or annotate. I love going and opening one of our books and seeing where this child wrote in pink ink and this child wrote in blue and seeing their notes and glimpses. And I can kind kind of tell almost who it was that wrote the notes just from knowing my children. Oh my goodness. I hope all of our books are written in and underlined and highlighted. And um, because, you know, a bear book's a lonely book (laughs) and those are treasures to me. Yeah, no, I know. I, I, it took me a long time to be able to write in books and now I can't read a book without a pen in my hand. Mm -hmm. But um now I, I, but I still get that voice in my head. You know, my mom was like, books are your friends. You don't write in them. And I'm like, no mom, books are my friends. I need to talk to them. And this is how I do it <laughs> No, But I have to change that dialogue in my head. Cause it was just, you know, yeah. yeah. Um, but I love to see it. Cause I mean, that's how I raised my boys is, you know, yes, you write, you talk to your books and, and you write in them. And, um, you know, many of them have like, well, this is my book I've written all over it. So I'm taking it with me and they've left. <laughs> yes. I bought multiple series of books for my children. Oh my goodness. Yeah. But the ones that have stuck around the house and have had multiple kids go through them, you're right. It's just, it's, you're like seeing that thought process of, of a child, a young person um, connecting with that author and it, it is so fun to to see that so yeah and well, another thing that we like to incorporate into our homeschooling well because it's a huge passion of mine um I grew up in foster care and things and was adopted at age 14 and so learning who my family was was a real importance to me and my, I wanted to ha- have this legacy for my children so I've incorporated a lot of 
um, family history into our homeschooling. And that has given us such depth. It's helped my children understand their who really who they are because and I I want to read a quote real quick. I've I've been gathering quotes on this, but um Sue Monk Kid said, stories have to be told or they die. And when they die, we can't remember who we are or why we're here. So those family stories are classics, they're personal classics that are powerful and meaningful and it's part of us. You know, we might read classics and take things in and are changed, but these stories are already a part of us. They're kind of in our DNA and um, they we can't discount how powerful they are. So I would encourage families to use family history and family stories and help their children learn how to do that so that they can have that depth of, of who they are in it. Um, and and I also think that um, I think it gives them depth in their scholar projects too. I mean, what a fun um, activity to let's find out if we're studying sort of freedom. Let's find out all of our ancestors and where they lived during the war and what side they were on, you know, or during the Revolutionary War or during um, the uh, you know, during the depression or world war two or whatever. Um, you know, my, I found out that my father's family were, they were from Oklahoma, part of what they called the Okies, which was a slur and slander. Uh, but they were part of that great dust bowl. And there were like 23 of them that came across in one vehicle and they ended up breaking down in Arizona. Their tires gave out shocker. <laughs> and everyone had to work in the fields for a month to afford new tires and then they made their way up to the San Joaquin Valley where they were in those migrant camps and the children's none of the nine siblings um ever went past like the fifth grade because they had to work as well and so you know the story of the grapes of wrath that goodness that could have been about my family and I didn't know those stories until I searched them out and uh, was able to connect with um relatives but you know there's skills associated with it, great research skills, and also being able to take those stories and put together pieces of information to create a story. And then I learned so much about my dad because my dad was an abusive man. He was an alcoholic. He was married nine different times. And so through studying the patterns of my family, I learned forgiveness. I learned understanding and compassion, not that it was right, but I learned compassion from my dad that he, he didn't have an education, that he grew up with a father who was abusive because he couldn't provide for his family. And so he would go get alcohol so he could drink this, his sorrows away for a little while. And then, you know, um, it's not right, but I understood they came from abject poverty and this is how they dealt with it. And so now I learned how to do it differently and could break that that pattern. Um, but so I, I say family history is absolutely as foundational as George. Yeah, I, I'm a second witness that we were studying George Washington's world this year. And the timeline that the lady gives in that book, it's a great, it's a good book. It's a good resource, but the timeline is all over the place. And it was like not making sense because she just like introduces different characters who were like 
who are the who was around when George Washington was a boy and who was around when George Washington was a young man and goes through his life but like highlights people who are famous in the world around him and we just couldn't keep track of it so then I was like how about we do this let's find out who our family history was back then and see if we can make any connections to that right and so then we found out okay so like 1730 and we're like oh wait we were in america in 1730 so like we were in you know england new england so i'm like well so like it really kind of helped like make all those connections and pieces you know we took different lines and thankfully we've because of um i have a great aunt on my dad's side who's done most of our our work like family history in on my hispanic side and then i have like my my grandma who did most of the work on my mom and that side so that we have those family lines have been really far back but it was just such a cool thing for the kids to be come to class the next week that like, guess what we had a family member that fought in the revolutionary war for nine days <laughs> like, that's awesome the muster roll that someone had put up on there like if you have roots in america like once you get to like 18 you know 20s or like even like they're kind of everyone's connected so like it's just kind of all put up there like as one big big thing so like once you can get like if you can get the connecting dots to put you back there then it's like everywhere my husband's family is from is, is from ireland we haven't done much there so we don't know too much on that side but mm -hmm. um it was su super cool too um and then and then we were talking to my my niece the other day about some of the things in the news about uh, racial issues and um we're talking about you know she's like should we have to pay for slavery and i was like yeah that's really interesting let's look about you okay you would consider yourself to probably be caucasian or white because you know your skin is lighter but let's just look at your family tree right now okay on your papa's side uh, your great grandfather worked in the silver mines at five years old and was a slave in essence, right? Mm -hmm. And he's very, very, very dark. And he married a woman who is a hundred percent Native American. So, <laughs> so yeah, you know, technically, you probably have 10 percent Native American in you. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't know if your papa side on this side, and then I'm like, but if you go to your nana's side then you know where is one line that they didn't own slaves but they lived in a slave state in the 1800s and probably supported slavery to some extent so you have a big you have both in your family so what's ethical should you have to pay or would you receive payment you know and so she's like i have no clue and i'm like yeah well that's why it's kind of messy because it's like yes we have to deal with what our ancestors have done but we're conglomeration of lots of people's choices and so we just need to go forward and improve upon those choices, right? And so, like, right. if if I didn't have those stories and I couldn't share them with my niece, I'd be like, I don't know, you know. But like, you know, it didn't tell her what to do or how to think about it. But I'm like, just look at your own history. What do you think truth is? <laughs> like, absolutely. Oh yes, asking questions is the best way to teach, isn't it? Yeah, and like the Cherokees during the Trail of Tears, the Cherokees had slaves that they brought with them you know, and there were a lot of, there actually were a lot of Irish slaves that were brought over. We call them indentured. Yeah, that's what I told them too. I'm like, and yeah. if you look at your Irish heritage, they were pretty much indentured slaves. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. But not, you know, Yeah. For breeding too. Yeah. So it's, yeah. I, it's I love mess. how just studying history can really put things in perspective especially when so many things are 
perspectives are being changed so much. And, and also like just really helps. I, I, I um, we moved here to Kentucky um, in 2000. And so it was, it was, I mean, it was a rough year for everyone, right? COVID was really hard for mm-hmm. everyone. It was really, really, really hard on my girls. Um, they left their, their neighborhood friends and their cousin, and it was really hard on them. And they were, I didn't think they'd ever forgive me. <laughs> they were so mad. Um, and my parents had moved out with us as well. And my dad started doing some family research, just, um, I don't know what got him going on it, but he found out that through his dad's side, there was, they came from Kentucky, right? So then he started doing some research and he's like, wait, not only did we come from Kentucky, his family was one of the first like 16 members, 16 families that came out and settled here in Kentucky. Wow. And so then he like started doing some more research and found out the town's still there and they have like a huge museum at the fort that was built there and they every year they have like a a festival in the fall and so he um took all the kids to this festival that fall we moved here and there on the wall was like a plaque of saying this is sarah little's cabin and if you're a member of sarah's little's ancestors you can sign this book and my dad was like oh yeah sarah little that's my you know forever how many great grandma and my little girl's name is Sarah. And she was like, oh, I'm from Kentucky. This is our home. We came home. So then like she came back from this trip that she took with her grandpa. And like, she's just so excited. Mom, mom, this is our home. We belong here. This is where we came from. This is our people. This is who we are. And and we came back home. Mom, is that so cool? Like we followed and we came back home. And so like then, like, no, never again was it an issue of like we had moved, right? And they mm-hmm. were they never brought it up because they felt, oh, this is home. This is where where we belong. This is where I belong. This is where, you know, so not everybody gets to do that with their family history, come back, obviously. But mm-hmm. just the very that like just telling that story and finding your roots was so healing. It was so healing for I mean, she was she was only nine <laughs> or eight. That's awesome. Yeah, and what a great way to teach. Uh, westward expansion because you know we can track our families from the east coast and then into ohio and down into tennessee and then kentucky just how the how the states were opened up yeah and that's so cool to use that as part of the method putting up a timeline and having you know whatever you're studying in your history and then a part for your family history and just that visual and it's not a hard thing to do um it's a great way to see it because you know their family history is like this huge elephant and you get you're this little flea on the leg and it's hard to see what the trunk looks like but putting up a big timeline at your house for your kids you know just where whatever they're setting and put it in and start filling out this huge road map um is a great way for families to put it all together great project do you have other resources for people to use or, or, or places for people to go or? Oh, to learn family history and stuff. Well, I mean, there's a lot of great YouTube videos. I actually, last year, um, I wrote a, a project. It's not with Lemmy yet. Maybe we'll see. I mean, I think it's super foundational, but I'm still fleshing it out. Um, I'm mentoring a family with it right now. Um, but I wrote a scholar for scholars. And then I taught it in our Commonwealth. And so, um, so I am, I've got that and I'm finishing that and I'll, I'm wanting to teach more, some of those online this next year. And I'm also right now working on developing it for families so that the fam, 
parents can be more the mentors of it and lead and guide their family. So a little bit differently so that it could either be led by a mentor um, for scholars or families could do it independently. So I, th I think it's one of the most important things we can do with our lives. It's also why I really feel like we should teach our children cursive because you can't read those records. You can't read our founding documents in original original form and also the founding documents of your families, which are the vital records and histories and deeds and wills and things like that. And a lot of information gets transcribed that you can um, an index online, but that's only a tiny portion of what's actually in the documents. So they might have some vital information, dates and names and things like in places, but you're going to find a lot more information about your family to start putting these stories together by actually being able to read the, the will or, or whatever it is. Um, many stuff that you're not going to find on the family search websites. And so I think that's really crucial. Um, right now, <clears throat> um, the vault in, the granite vault in Utah, they have finished um, digitizing all of the records just this past year. But they're saying that it's going to take something like 100 years to index it all to, so that it's then searchable. That's everyone indexing. But they're thinking that AI will be able to come and do that in a much faster um, way, but we still need, we still need individuals and they're still working on a program to create that. Um, but uh, in the meantime, they need us to not only search out our own, but also to take the records that have been digitized, look at, look at them, type them into fields so that anybody can then get them from the database. It's searchable. Um, so that's another way that people can be involved in that, in adding to the history of what others can learn. So, but yes, I would definitely encourage families to do that. That's awesome. I know um, for my mom last year for her birthday, I got her a subscription to uh, StoryWorth and she is writing her own story story of her life and um it's been very uh it's been really helpful for her my my dad passed away um two years ago and so this this year just being able to go through and and really just share all of those family stories with you know she's feeling like she didn't write them all down for her her kids and her grandkids and even extended family and so yeah, I could see how, how it's been changing her. Well, one of the things we're almost done um, with our time with you, but I, one of the things I really want to talk to you about is your costume design. Oh, okay. So I'm yeah. a costume designer by trade. And because I love theater, I direct and I've written some musicals too, but I mostly do costume design because I can do it at home and be with my children. And um, I just closed the show Saturday night after I, did training uh, Pirates of Penzance. And so it, I last year, it was, yeah, last year was my first year. 
I put together um, Zoom classes for those that might want to learn. And it's not just about, it's not even really about sewing. You don't actually technically have to sew to be able to do costume design. But in the class, we learn about how to read a script, how to pull a script apart, how to interpret it, understanding characters and all kinds of really great, um, great thinking things and how to talk to people, how to have a meeting, how to how to collaborate on a project. And we learn all about color and what color means. And we learn a lot about history because you're a man's pant waistline is, and the men today don't want to wear a high waist pant. Let me tell you, I'm always wagging my fingers up, pull your pants up. This is a 1930s show or whatever, you know, um, or, or lines. And, and you can learn a lot of history about uh, by studying what people wore and why they wore it. And so anyway, I put three different sessions um, that are 12 weeks. And so basic costume design, and, and we go through a full script. We go through several scripts. We start with three little pigs, you know, and, and putting them in different time periods and everyone, and we have just so much fun uh, learning about it. But I had one scholar that, um, Abby from Oregon, and she took all three of them. Um, so basic design and then the next session was historical design and then I did like a fantasy which is so fun because you could do anything fantasy anime we only briefly touched on anime um, and like included superheroes and everyone got to create their own superhero costume and um, she finished all of them and she came out from Oregon to St. George and she apprenticed under me as I designed for the show and she got to to design for one of the characters and it was just so awesome we had a great time so and that was part of, that was one of her passions so it's great when we can let our students um apprentice I will be I think we're set up in the early spring to um or we're, we're hoping to to for me to come on and do another one about how to adapt costume design for Shakespeare leaders um and teachers and um, I'm excited to do that for you guys. But if anyone has youth or adults that want to take the courses, you can get a hold of me. I don't know if you put out the contact information or anything. Yeah, no, I will definitely put the contact information in our show notes so that um, anybody who's listening can get a hold of you. Because I mean, that sounds fascinating. If I had time, I would do it. I just <laughs> love that kind of stuff. It's so fun. And it's really not offered anywhere else in the world, I don't think, um, like this. And I've never taken a college class in costuming or anything. I just learned from doing. So anyway. Best way. The absolute yeah, best way. Good. I think I'm going to get my niece to join on that. She's just caught the bug and she's just making stuff like every day. She's sewing and sewing and sewing and sewing. Oh, she's, that's great. Yeah. She's so, she, it's a very beautiful way to you know art form really is mm -hmm. it is it's an amazing art form and what it does to the actors when they put that costume on it just it just brings them to life inside yeah. and outside yeah it's a big difference it's a big difference thank you for taking your time and, and and sharing your journey with us and your awesome insights and we're so very grateful for everything you do at Lenny and and the inspiration you are to all our mentors it's so awesome to hear from you today yeah. Well, thanks this for is, having me. Yeah. No, this was wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode. Just as in every Lemmy training, 
We hope you walk away uplifted and inspired, but also empowered to be a better mentor for your family and your community. Please be sure to subscribe and share. We also want to express our gratitude to all the Lemmy mentors, past and present. You got this. You can do hard things.